So you probably already know how many men died on Calvary that day. Not just one, the one we're most interested in, Jesus, but there were actually three men that died on Calvary that day by the same method of execution, by the cross. So I'm going to ask you to take a look at that place, and it's um, Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And I think one of the most interesting parts of the story of the cross, burial, and resurrection takes place right here. Luke chapter 23. Now Luke was a physician. He was an educated man. But Luke was also a historian who is generally highly regarded for his history, especially in the book of Acts. book of Acts has a lot of places, a lot of names, a lot of activity. And uh, you may not be aware of this or not, but a, an unbelieving archaeologist one day uh, was working in the Middle East, doing his archaeological work, and he was having a really tough time finding things, finding places. And just sort of on a venture, he just picked up the, gospel, the book of Acts and he said, I'm going to see if there's anything to this book. And one place after another, he began to find the places he was looking for because Luke's archaeological or Luke's descriptions of names and places was so accurate that he went on to become a Christian. His name is William Ramsey and he was knighted for his great scholarly work. He's Sir William Ramsey. So... I would uh, recommend that let's pay attention because Luke was a very careful and methodical historian and what he's written here, uh, it makes sense to listen to. So Luke chapter 23, and I le- I'd like to read a couple places here and there, okay? So first of all, verses 32 and 33. There were also two others, that is with Jesus, criminals, in the other places they call them robbers, or bandits, or thieves. Two other criminals led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. So there's two men on either side of Jesus Christ. And you might see the point of God's sovereignty putting them in that position. Because Jesus truly is the divider of men and women. Where you stand before God is how you stand with Jesus Christ. Now let's skip down to look at verse 39. Then one of those criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do, not, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So these men are two criminals, and one in the center is Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Have you ever heard of the name Barabbas? Pretty infamous name. Because at Jesus' trial, Pilate, at the instigation of the crowd, let Barabbas go 
and crucified Jesus. Now, who was this man Barabbas? We really don't know much about him at all, except it says that Barabbas was a murderer and an insurrectionist. Now, you know what an insurrectionist is? It's a rebel. It's somebody who's trying to pull off a revolution. Somebody's trying to throw out the regime, the regime that's in power. So Luke uses the word criminals here. Others use the word bandits or thieves. And commonly, most people think that Jesus was hung on a cross beside two thieves. And that's, that's okay. That's a legitimate way. But to understand what these men were guilty of, we need to look at Barabbas. Because it's quite possible, I think likely, that they were being held by the Romans for the same reason Barabbas was being held by the Romans. There'd been a, an attempt to throw the Romans out of the country, and of course it failed, as they always did, and they, those who lived after the, after the legionnaires got rid of them, or got finished with them, were being held until, until the time they would be crucified, and now it's happening here. Now, we also know this is the case because of the, the form of execution being used here, which you know is crucifixion. The sentence for insurrection, according to the Romans, was crucifixion. Now listen to this. This will tell you something about how the Romans viewed the people they crucified, and these two criminals here, and how the people viewed Jesus Christ. Because crucifixion was a special form of execution among the Romans and others in the ancient world. It was used for people they deemed less than human, an especially vile form of human scum. That's what they thought of persons they decided to execute by crucifixion. As someone might say today, there's a special place for them reserved in hell. In other words, these are the worst of the worst, and those are the ones we crucify. Imagine that. Jesus Christ classified with criminals and put to death in that way. I'd like to take a look at the first one here in verse 39, the first criminal. Look at verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged, that's just another way of saying blasphemy because they're hung on the, the, those cross pieces, then one of the criminals who was hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. It might be easy to get confused here. You might think, well, he's asking Jesus to help him. If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But notice what it says. This is blasphemy. He's blaspheming Jesus. So what does this mean? He's actually saying, yeah. You're the Messiah, right. He's actually saying you're an imposter, which is what almost everybody around the cross was saying about Jesus. They were mocking, they were jeering, they were scoffing, they were scorning him. And so this man joins with the crowd, follows the crowd. He accepts the world's consensus that Jesus is not true. He's not real. He's not who he says he is. He's something else. He's someone else. Maybe he's just a fraud. In fact, you know, the scholars and the authorities of that day, that's what they said. Now, you know who the scholars and authorities of that, of that day were, right? The scribes and the priests. 
They were the scholars and the authorities. And they had, they had commandeered this act of crucifixion. They forced Pilate to do it. He didn't want to do it. You read the accounts and you'll find that Pilate was reluctant. He was holding back. He did not want to do this. And so he basically gave in to the cries of the scribes and the priests and the crowd and killed this man. So I'm going to ask you, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? Do you believe this, what this man thinks? He's a fraud. Or do you believe that Jesus Christ is really the Son of God, the Savior of the world? Because that's really what today is all about. It's really what the coming of Christ is all about. Who Jesus is, what he did, is he for real? Is he who he says he was? Did he do what he came, what he says he came to do? But now let's take a look at the second criminal. Very different attitude here. Verse 40. But the other answering the first one rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. I call this man the convict under conviction. The convict under conviction. This one, if you think about what he's saying here, he believes in a creator. He believes in a creator who exercises justice. Can you see it? What are you saying to him? We belong on this cross. We've done evil. We deserve to suffer. This is justice being carried out. There is a day of judgment. There is right and wrong. There is good and evil. And he fully admits that he's wrong. I mean, a lot of people that are in prison will tell you they didn't do anything wrong. That's a very common attitude among convicts. But here's one who says... They got me dead to rights. I'm wrong. I'm guilty. I'm sinful. I deserve this. This man in the middle doesn't. You over there and I do. It's amazing to see this. And he also believes that there's going to be a day of judgment. That he will have to pay his sins. I ask you, what do you think about this? We live in a pretty secular society now. It's been highly influenced by atheism, agnosticism. You know, nobody's supposed to impose their beliefs or their, uh, their religious views upon other people. But I wanted to ask you this question when I thought about this man and how he thinks and what he says. Is everything mere chance? Do you believe that? Atheism and evolution, for example imply that there is no final truth, no enduring moral or ethical standard, no final justice, no design, no creator. It means that you and I and everything else are the result of chance and accident. Did you know that? In a few million years, all this will be gone. You will be forgotten forever and everything will be different because it's constantly changing. It's evolving. So 
Things may seem important to you and to me while we're alive, but when we're gone, there'll be a whole nother development, and they'll think it's important too, unless evolution just gets rid of the human race, which can seem to be kind of a pesky problem for the planet. If you think about it. The universe is impersonal, cold, and indifferent to poverty, to suffering, to sorrow, to you. Who cares? Nothing ultimately matters. Love, the people that you love, the people that care about you. There's really no meaning. There's really no purpose. And if you come up with one, that's your purpose. And when you die, your purpose dies with you. Art ultimately means nothing and is meaningless. Music ultimately means nothing. And it's just going to be gone, just like every single one of us. Now, that's really... That's really the kind of thinking that presses in on us today. How many people do you think would be like this criminal who says, all right, here I am. I didn't want to admit it. I was running this terrible life, doing my own thing, making decisions. Sometimes I had qualms of conscience, uh, but I had friends and we did this and we thought we were going to get rid of the Romans because it's possible that he thought he was being noble as he killed people as he stole from people, as he conspired together with others of his fellows to overthrow the Romans, and we're the ones doing God's will. But when he got arrested and we, when he was put on the cross, that all fell apart. And he said, no, I'm a sinner. I've done wrong. I've rebelled against God, not just the Romans. I've taken the law into my own hands, and here I am. This is justice. This is what I believe. And so he turns to Jesus Christ, and that's the third one we want to look at. Here's a very interesting conversation that takes place here. So let's take a look at this again at verse 40, if you would. The other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you're under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due or just reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, what comes out of the mouth of this criminal is amazing to me. He says, we deserve our punishment, but this man doesn't. He has done nothing wrong. How did Jesus end up on the cross of all forms of execution? How did he end up on the cross? He did nothing wrong. Here's a guy who knows people who have done wrong, and he looks at Jesus and he says, he hasn't done anything wrong. You know, that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that Jesus was righteous, that he was innocent, that he was pure, that he did not deserve to die. Did you know that? What was God the Father doing when he let his son go to the cross and die in that horrible, miserable way? that he was being treated like a pile of vile, filthy human scum. And please, I'm not trying to be sensationalistic. I'm not trying to be uh, overly graphic. I'm not trying to be irreverent. That's what the cross meant when somebody was executed by that form. That was what it meant. Uh, let me show you something here earlier. Look at verse 4. 
Remember what I said a few minutes ago? That from what we can tell, it looks like Pilate was trying to get out of crucifying Jesus. Very reluctant, held back, was trying to get Jesus released. And that's how Barabbas got released, by the way. He brought Barabbas out, a notorious murderer, murderer, and he says, all right, you guys can pick. Do you want me to release Barabbas to you? And he's thinking inside, I'll never want this guy, or Jesus. They said, we'll take Barabbas, take Jesus away, and crucify him. He didn't know what to do after that. So look what he says in verse 4. So Pilate said to the chief priests, the authorities, and the crowd, I find no fault in this man. You see, the Jews would have gladly executed Jesus, but they didn't have the right to execute Jesus. They did not have the right to capital punishment. So they had to take Jesus to the Romans, to Roman justice. And you know, I don't know what you think about the Romans, but one of the things that the Romans were well known for was they ran a well-oiled machine as an empire. I mean, they couldn't have lasted that long and been that powerful if they weren't good at administrating justice. And they did so. They were known for being pretty just rulers. However, if you got on the wrong side, their justice was brutal, like you're saying with these criminals in Jesus. He didn't want to crucify or kill anybody who was without sin or without crime. They didn't like to do that. And you see, he's struggling to try to stop the train wreck that's about to happen. So the other thing that he does is he says, well, take, take him away and we'll scourge him. And they, 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 as they say, they, they beat Jesus to a pulp. They scourged him and flayed him. And he brought Jesus back out in front of everybody, bloody and beaten up, thinking, surely you'll look and see your fellow countrymen, Jesus, and you'll say, all right, that's enough. Let the guy go. He's, he may, may not even live through that beating. And they all the more cried for him to be crucified. And notice, Pilate says, I find no fault in him. Now, that's what Pilate says. That's what this criminal says. But the Bible says it. The scriptures say that Jesus was like a, like a lamb without spot, without blemish. And remember, in the Old Testament, all through the period of time when animal sacrifices were made, for sins in anticipation of Jesus Christ to make the once and for all final sacrifice, the animal had to be a faultless animal without blemish. It had to be a perfect specimen, whether of a lamb or a sheep or a goat or a bull, whatever it might be. And that was anticipating and pointing that Jesus Christ would be born without sin, that he would grow up a righteous man who loved God and loved his fellow man and never committed sin, but obeyed God. And that's what Jesus is doing when he's on the cross. He's obeying his Father, because his Father sent Jesus, and Jesus gladly came in order to die on the cross for us, because we're not blameless. We're not sinless. We're all guilty. We haven't loved God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. At least I know I never did. They haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves. In fact, sometimes we don't even love those closest to us like we should, right? You know, God sees all that. God knows all that. He's just. And the world is not impersonal and cold and indifferent. It's God's world. He's the creator. And he says, this is what's right. This is what's wrong. And I want the world to love each other 
and we don't, over and over and over again. So this man who's on the cross with Jesus, and he says, you know what, we deserve this. He doesn't, we deserve this. You know what we call that, what happens to that man on the cross, what he says? It's repentance, and it's faith. He repents by saying, I'm in the wrong. I don't deserve God's favor. I do deserve punishment. Justice, if justice is served, I'm condemned. I'm hopeless. That's repentance. But look at the faith. Let's look back here at verse uh, 42. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's faith. That's faith. He says, Lord, Remember me. Have mercy upon me. Don't forget me. I'm looking to you. I'm crying out to you. There's something about you. I know. And you say, how did this guy figure this out? Jesus was very well known, right? His reputation was was pretty widespread. Wherever he went, he drew crowds. So the word about Jesus was out there in the public. Now, of course, the scholars and the authorities said, He's a liar, he's a fraud, he's an imposter. But he's watching Jesus suffer, and he knows about his reputation. And he's beginning to put it together by the grace of God. I think the Holy Spirit's working in this man's heart. And he says, you know what? I know I deserve this, but he doesn't. What I've heard is true. So he calls him Lord, and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He says, I'm going to give you everything. My life, my body, my future, my past, my hope, I'm giving you everything. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. I can see that there's something about you, and you're not going to go away, even if you die on this cross. You see it? And Jesus says to him, now how, how can this be? Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Wow. Now, Jesus expected to be alive after his body died. Do you see that? Because he says today. Now, he died on what we call Good Friday. That day, he says to this man, today you will be with me together in paradise. And paradise was the way they, they referred to heaven or the presence of God, life after death. You'll be with me in paradise. So, I wanted to quote something for you because I thought, well, I'm going to tell everybody this today, and somebody might be sitting there, I I think I probably would have at one time, and say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This guy, he says, I've done a lot of wrong things, and you're telling us he might have been a murderer, a thief, and a rebel. So what do you mean, today you will be with me in paradise? How's that work? Is that justice? Is that right? Doesn't this guy have to pay for some of this? Good question. Listen to this. The Apostle Paul, who hated Jesus in the beginning and did everything he could to stop Christianity, Jesus revealed himself to Paul and saved him. And later on, Paul writes these words. He says, and this is 2 Corinthians 5.21 if you want to look at it at some point. For he, that is God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ his Son, who knew no sin, who was without sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
Now, don't miss this. The Father sent Jesus Christ, his Son, who knew no sin, sinless, innocent, pure, righteous, to be sin for us. What does that mean, that Jesus would be sin for us? It means that God the Father sent his Son, Jesus, who willingly came to be an offering or a sacrifice for sin. And the result of that is so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So the criminal now becomes the righteousness of God. What? The criminal, because Jesus died on the cross right beside him and paid for his sins. And when the criminal says, Lord, remember me, he repents of his sin, he puts his faith in Jesus Christ, and what Jesus Christ did on that cross is applied to this criminal, and his sins are forgiven, and the righteousness which comes from the obedience of Jesus Christ, not your obedience, because it, it would have to be perfect obedience, flawless obedience. You'd have, to, you'd have to be able to go back in your life and say, every day of my life, every moment of my life, I always did the right thing, and I never did the wrong thing. Now, if I'm honest, I'm not going to be able to say that. I'm going to have to say, you know, mm. I mean, I think sometimes back when I was being raised by my mom and my dad, some of the things that I did even back then when I was a dumb little kid. So, and what about my sister? I had two sisters. And... Uh, I wasn't always the kindest, nicest, gentlest brother with them. So you look back over your life like this man does. Now, I may not have murdered anybody, but I'll tell you what, I probably murdered a few people on the highway a few times with my attitude, you know? Sometimes you get a little too close to somebody to teach them a lesson, you know? We've all sinned, and all of us come short of the glory of God. That's just another way to put it. And so, so he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he says, by doing that, he says, I repent of my sins, and I'm putting my faith in you, that though I deserve this punishment, by trusting in you, my punishment is taken away from me because it fell on you, and you become my righteousness. I'm acceptable to God because of my faith in Jesus Christ. Not my works, not my goodness, not my hope, hope so, but because of Jesus Christ. And listen to what Jesus says. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. If the Bible is to be believed, after that man died, and it looks like Jesus died before that man, chronologically, it's Jesus is saying that when you die in this body, you're going to see me. We're going to be together in paradise. And that's why at just about every funeral, when I'm the pastor officiating that funeral, I will say to be absent from the body. And sometimes I'll point this way because we'll maybe have the casket there. To be absent from the body, this body, is to be present with the Lord. What assurance that gives us because of Jesus Christ. Jesus said... I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though they may die, yet shall they live. Now listen to this. And whoever believes, whoever lives and believes in me, you know the rest of it, shall never die. That's what Jesus says. That's what Jesus promises. So 
We can, those of us who believe, those of us who know this and have this assurance, we rejoice. We're confident. We're bold. What can anybody do to us? What can go wrong? Yeah, I know things can go wrong, but ultimately, ultimately, our loved ones will be together again. This world, it'll come to an end, and a new one will be, will be created, a new heavens and a new earth. We'll miss our loved ones, but where else do you get this kind of confidence, this kind of hope? From one person and one person alone, Jesus Christ. He says, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Whoever believes in me will never die. So I ask you, do you have this assurance? If you're a Christian, is it making any difference in your daily life? Are you living in the victory of the resurrection? And if you're not there, you haven't repented of your sins, and you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, what are you waiting for? Are you ready to say today, Lord, Remember me when you come in your kingdom. Are you ready for that? Maybe today's the day when the Holy Spirit's working in you and saying, you know, I can't put this off. I can't delay it. Or maybe I haven't heard it like that before. I, yeah, I, I don't want to die. I, wanna, I know I've sinned. I need, need forgiveness. I repent. I ask you to forgive me for my sins. Call upon his name. The Bible says you will be saved. Isn't that great? What a great God, loving God. He would send his own son that we could be forgiven and righteous by faith and faith alone. Let's pray. I don't want to start to pray without saying if, if you need this assurance and your own forgiveness and you are in that place where you're convicted of your sin and know that you, you need to leave it and come to Jesus, I want to give you a moment to do that in this moment of silence right here where you're at in your place and say, yes, I, I, I don't want to feel this guilt, this shame. I don't want to be facing God on the judgment day. And say to Jesus, Lord, forgive me my sins. I turn away from them. I put my faith in you. Remember me when you come in your eternal, everlasting kingdom. Let me give you a few moments to do that. And if you've begun a new life in Christ, please let one of us know. That would be great, and we can help you out. Our Father, we thank you for the, uh, the fullness of our salvation, not only the forgiveness of our sins, but the very righteousness of God you give to us as a free gift by our trusting in your Son and receiving his death as payment for our sins and his obedience as the righteousness in which we stand before you and are accepted by you. Thank you, O Lord. Now, help us, Lord, who know you, who have been raised up together with you by faith spiritually. Now, Lord, may we be your witnesses. May we live a confident life with assurance and not go out in the world and start worrying and being afraid of this, that, and the other thing, knowing that if you did the greatest thing, the thing we needed the most and couldn't do for ourselves, then you'll take care of every other matter that you bring across our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.